United States of Lead is an informative podcast that may contain sensitive material and the occasional F-bomb. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the United States of Lead, a podcast about crime, mental decline, and the lead thread that links them. In previous episodes, we have discussed a little bit about leaded gasoline, and you've probably heard about the link between leaded gas and crime in the news as of late. There's that NBC article. There's also, I think I get into this a little bit later, so a couple podcasts have touched on this too. So in this week's episode, we're going to discuss the history of leaded gasoline, and oh boy, get ready to be outraged. We're just briefly touching on the history I want people to realize because there's so much to this. So I remember asking my dad about leaded gas and he tried to explain to me, I couldn't understand it, but I never understood. What I knew was the leaded option was less expensive. There was this other option that was more expensive. There was some danger connected to it. So you do Uh, remember there being danger to it? 100%. I mean, you do it. I don't. Okay. But I also, and my dad was a machinist and also a race car driver. Okay. So like, maybe it was too, like, it's fine. Mm-hmm. He had to have been using it. Cause like we talked about like NASCAR didn't ban it till 2008. And he, I mean, he didn't do the circle racing. He did this, the straight drag racing, you know, where drag you just racing. go down the yep. strip. He actually won the national championship when I was a kid. That's super cool. My memories of at the, at the pump, I'm just leaning over just in, like in the, like handle just breathing that in that is my memories of a child like at the palm and I mean I guarantee you I'm not the only child who did that for how much my dad clearly worked with these chemicals and with leaded everything like from his work to his side work I'm shocked that this I'm that person who only knew like lead poisoning from water and paint that's it I don't know if we I thought of it as poisoning it's yeah. almost as if it was um, a concern rather than something that just wasn't healthy rather than a straight up poison. But I knew yeah. that there was a health concern. My dad was a, he's the son of a carpenter and worked in a factory. Oh, yeah. He worked around who knows what. Exactly. All sorts of chemicals and cut a lot of metal. And um, the fact that it was just an option is what I really yeah. want to wrap my head around. The idea that it was... I feel like that is that 
companies in charge getting to wash their hands clean. You, the consumer, are making this choice. Do you know what I mean? That's very like that's what I think that is. I think that's a like, hey, you had the option. Free hand of the market. Corporations are always trying to find a way to make themselves not responsible for the shit show that they create. So that's the option there is like, well, you had the choice and you chose to use that. The other weird thing that uh, I just want to throw this out um, was something called full service and self. Oh yeah. They still have full service like over on the West coast. Oh, they do. And I famously in, in Oregon. Yeah. We used it once. I was like, Oh, this is weird. I feel like we should play some like fifties music or something. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Put all my money on the blue chips. Um, We got a Coca-Cola, oh, yeah, we got a chocolate shake. Yeah. <laughs> Get some French fries up at McDonald's. Anyway, sorry. Well, we never got the full service, so I still like. Oh yeah. Again, it wasn't until I was an older kid, and I think I saw it in something. Where I was like, oh, so you would pay someone to actually pump your gas? Like you yeah. pay. I think it was when I went to Oregon. I learned what it was. Yeah. That's interesting. And like, think about that connection too, with like the like services now, you know, like you can choose not to like interact with a person and then it's like, well, I don't, well, at least I don't have to tip them or at least, you know, it's like that same model just a few decades earlier. Oh yeah. I always know. Oh God. Well, and people, I've seen people, yeah, I've seen people lately who are like peeved about when you go to a a drive-thru or something like now that they're using like those little card systems and it forces you to tip. And people annoyed with it. It's like, you know, just tip 10%. Yeah. Well, it's, and the, I just think the outrage is, of it is like. So we're living in an imperfect system and it's uh, where people are not paid what yes. a livable wage. I, yeah, for sure. The one way of helping people out and sharing the burden is by tipping people. But really, like everyone should just be paid everyone should, and that's like the other hey like we're we're putting it on you the consumer you can help right. them make more money even though the company should be paying them more we just re- we got to get into that specific we've brought this up three times now so like we really need to get into like obviously not in this podcast but the specific about the corporations wiping their hands clean of their responsibilities and how that connects to how we run everything including our judicial system if there's anything that's the United States of, like, that is our motto, I feel like, as far as corporate America, and it's absurd. One time I was at Starbucks. Sorry, we're going we're gonna to get to gas, but one time I was at Starbucks and Target, and this was pre-pandemic, I think, and I was looking for the tip jar. And so I asked her, I'm like, hey, I'm like, do you have a tip jar? Or like, I don't see anywhere on my credit card I can tip. And she goes, oh, we can't accept tips. I tried giving her money. She's like, I really appreciate it. She's like, but I can't, I can't touch that. She's like, if any, if we ever get seen accepting a tip, we'll be fired. And for listeners, Paul and I worked in the service industry for ages. I I just couldn't, I was speechless. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll be writing to Starbucks for that. I couldn't believe that a corporation could not allow me to tip them still pay them what they're getting paid. If they get $10 from somebody and they split it between the two of them who are back there, who can't, why do you care? Anyways, let it guess what we were actually going to be talking about. So right off the bat, one of the main articles that I'll be citing is from the Smithsonian Magazine that was published in 2016 by Kat Eschner. 
entitled Leaded Gas Was a Known Poison the Day It Was Invented. Quote, for most of the mid 20th century, lead gas was considered normal. It wasn't. Lead is a poison and burning it had dire consequences. But how did it get into gasoline in the first place? So the answer goes back to 1921 when General Motors engineer named Thomas Midgley Jr. told his boss, Charles Kettering, that he discovered a new additive which worked to reduce the, quote, knocking in car engines. That additive was tetraethyl lead, which also called TEL, most people probably know it as TEL, a highly toxic compound that was discovered in 1854. I'm looking at some diagrams right now of mm-hmm. engine knocking. This mm-hmm. is not, I mean, this, that's the sort of phrase that sounds like you would know what it is because I know what engines are. I know what knocking is, but mm-hmm. engine knocking. And I think I'm putting it together how it's not as the piston isn't firing as smooth. It's not going up and down as smoothly. Let's briefly touch on that knocking and car engines from that same Smithsonian article. Knocking, quote, made cars less efficient and more intimidating to consumers because of the loud noise. But there were other anti-knock agents. Kitman writes that Migley himself said he tried any substance he could find in search for an anti-knock. He went from melted butter, because you know that sounds really good to put in a car, and camphor to eat. Just put some butter on it. Aluminum Can you imagine just putting a stick up, like looking at that and being like, well, let's just try some butter. <laughs> I felt like you just had it next to him for breakfast. I'm like frozen in his car. Well, my wife's ring was a little stuck the other day and I used <laughs> butter to get that off. So. So, all right. I mean, yeah. So. <laughs> And then, Sorry. So yeah, the knocking is so it's like it, it's supposed to. Yeah, it's supposed to go up, down. Up, it's that pop, like you know where it, like it needed to like a, like a lubrication almost, if you will. But the most compelling option was actually ethanol, which we're like, hmm, gee, don't we use that now? <laughs> so back then, this is crazy because I mean, <laughs> so this is nineteen twenty-one. Yes. So and he knew that that was the most compelling option. Okay. But this poison, they right. chose- And it was to for a semi-cosmetic purposes to make the car more appealing or like yeah. less intimidating. I mean, you hear it in old movies, you know, and that's actually, I would love for us to do a deep dive of propaganda of the knocking in films. Cause think about that in old films, you know, where you hear like, like the pop, 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 pop. Like, is there actually any mechanical issues with that? I understand that there was fear around the car and automobile adoption was a big deal and people weren't just racing to the the dealership to buy these things. Yeah. But I just want to say in the grand scheme of things, they're trying to make this less intimidating. And the option, the alternative for this was a horse. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That literally poops on the street. (laughs) The (laughs) option... The general maintenance of my car is much cleaner than, uh, or even car back, it was much cleaner than a donkey. Yeah. (laughs) Just throw that out there. I don't know. (laughs) So going back to this article, quote, from the perspective of GM, Kitman wrote, ethanol wasn't an option. It couldn't be patented. 
and GM couldn't control its production. So therefore it's not an option if we have to allow other people to use it, America. And oil companies like DuPont quote, hated it, he wrote, perceiving it to be a threat to their control of internal combustion engine. Just wanted to add a quick apology to listeners for the screaming child in the background. Did not realize how loud she was until I started editing. So does this sound familiar? Oh, I can't have complete control over this and I hate it. This is the most, and clearly obviously what we use now and the most compelling option and the safer option. So it just shows like those decisions have nothing to do with the consumer ever. And they never do. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we obviously see at the gas station that ethanol won out in the long run, decades and decades, a half a century later. But from this article, it seems once again that that tiny rich sector of corporate, you know what, chose to use a poisonous gas for their own personal gain because the American way. From that same Smithsonian article, quote, Tell filled the same technical function as ethanol, he wrote. It reduced the knocking by raising the fuel's combustibility what would come to be known as octane. And that's a term we hear all the time when it comes to, you know, especially like fast cars and, and NASCAR. And I'm like, and torque. Yeah. Everybody hears it. No one really, really Nobody, really yeah, yeah. It's just, and that's another reason too why I named this episode Need for Speed. I just think of that sure. culture. Unlike ethanol though, it couldn't be potentially used as a replacement for gasoline as it had in bed in some early cars. So here's the drawbacks they saw of Tell. The drawback, it was a known poison. Drawback, (laughs) tends towards death. (laughs) You know, the drawback is it it could kill you. Described in 1922 by a DuPont executive as a colorless liquid of Swedish odor, very poisonous if absorbed through the skin, resulting in lead poisoning almost immediately. So is the sweet smell of the gasoline, is that from lead? I'm sure that's why I was huffing it at the pump when I was a child. I loved the smell of gas as a child. Yeah. If you're someone who loves that smell, you're not alone. There's a, I mean. I mean, I don't anymore. So that makes me wonder. I guarantee you my dad was using leaded gas. Wow. And so again, that was the quoted description by a DuPont executive in 1922, right after it was introduced and it wasn't into the mass public yet. So they knew from the beginning how poisonous it was. I'm, I'm getting a picture of a sci-fi story. Like I feel like if there was dilithium or these this thing that makes the, the, the ship go fast, it's mm-hmm. a weird thing in a story where we're trying to make this unbelievable thing believable. And everyone on the ship, to make it believable, I think we could assume that everyone would know, like, you can't just pick up the space crystals. You have to set them correctly, and you can't... Mm-hmm. If, how would you... I, we haven't been trained... Like, this is this is something that's in all of our cars, and it was... Mm-hmm. It fueled the 20th century, and... Uh, Knowing the history of this, they're going to call it, like, critical lead theory, and it's going right. to be banned in the United States, because that's not the history we want you to know. You're it's, you're making me think that my lead is is wrong. <laughs> you're making me feel feel bad making, about using lead. So I need to ban. <laughs> need to get you you fired from your job. I hate you, Ted Cruz. Uh huh. Anyways, uh, 
And going, I mean, going back to, to like somebody like with, you know, the false narrative of climate change and fossil fuels and how much he gets paid off for it. Like, this is the exact same shit. Going back, like what you were saying about the science fiction part, like the part of this is going to make you think of the Twilight Zone here in just a second. I can't wait. Here we go. Of course, major players in the rise of leaded gasoline would deny ever knowing how poisonous leaded gas was because, again, America. But they definitely knew, and we will touch on that a little bit later on the corruption. And that's something we see all the time is, I never did that. And then once they actually get caught, I did know about that. I mean, that's just, again, a narrative of American culture that, and not just America, but corporate culture, the rich versus the poor culture, the lack of accountability, white male culture, that obviously leaks into every other sector of that. The sex part of the Smithsonian article, I want to note, quote, several other sources, but those sources are linked within the Smithsonian article. And the Smithsonian article will be linked on our social media, as well as the episode synopsis. In February 1923, a filling station sold the first tank of leaded gasoline. Midgley wasn't there. Why? Because he was in bed with severe lead poisoning, writes History.com. The next year, there was a serious backlash against leaded gasoline after five workers died from tell exposure at the Standard Oil Refinery in New Jersey, writes Deborah Blum from Wired. But still, the gasoline went into general sales later that decade. In 1926, she writes, a public health service report concluded there was, quote, no reason to prohibit the sale of leaded gasoline, end quote, so long as workers were protected when they made it. We know this has literally killed people and put the guy who discovered it on his deathbed, but there's no reason to prohibit the sale of it. We know that it topically on your skin causes immediate lead poisoning, but there's no reason to prohibit it. It's the same thing we were talking about having, you were, you were talking about having lead tests as yeah. a, a baby. Yeah. And then. Done. And then we're good. And that's only if we're they fine. think you're like at risk or you request it. It's only like if they like know you're in a dilapidated building or you're in a high level or you request it because your child is showing symptoms, your infant's showing symptoms. I shouldn't say infant either. It's usually around like age two. And a lot of those symptoms are at that age of development where a kid does have hyperactivity. The kid does have this, you know, so it's like hard to gauge whether or not to begin with. (sighs) So we'll jump back to the Smithsonian article in just a second, but here's a good time to add some information from the amazing Dr. Herbert Nebelman, who again was an expert in lead poisoning and its effects on children. And this is from an article that I quoted earlier in the first episode, quote, shortly after production began, workers in all three plants began to go crazy and die, often in straitjackets. Somewhere between 13 and 15 known deaths occurred and over 300 men became psychotic. And then this is where we get to the twilight zone part. Workers called the product, quote, loony gas. And the place where it was fabricated was called, quote, the house of butterflies. And it earned this name by the sight of psychotic workers trying to brush phantom insects off their arms, end quote. I just picture a Twilight episode where it's, you know, these hallucinations and then like you find the culprit and it's the gas. It just feels like a Twilight episode. What happened? Were there policies about this in the factory? What happens when? So this is shortly after the production began. Okay. And this is where we say like they knew full well how poisonous it was. 
before it went onto the market. They had all this information and they knew the psychotic breaks. Over 300 men became psychotic. And like I said, we're going to get to the link to true crime and the rise of serial killers in the 70s who clearly all have some deep psychosis. And going back again to what I said before we started, that a lot of true crime likes to paint killers and repeat offenders as these monsters where it's just this thing, like it's just this single issue with this one person and like, you know, like they're just a monster. No, they're not. So There's always something behind it. At least 13 people died from this. And over 300 people- First production began. 300 people became psychotic. What was the talk at the boardroom table when six people were hospitalized? And that's why I too, like, I want to get into a deep dive. And we touch a little bit on quotes here a little bit from some of the higher ups, but um, that's definitely something that's its own standalone because, oh yeah, like, you know what I mean? Like they they had this information and the fact that the workers called it loony gas. Right. So like, there's so many things to unpack here. Like, so first of all, these numbers, but like you're pointing out now, there was a common term for this, like people would have worked, gone to the bar, and then talked about- Made light of it. They would have made light of it. Something had to have happened, and then they had to process that. And then they had to come up with this term, this common term, that was the House of Butterflies. It's just that Yeah, and that caused them to be, like, think of just, like I said, we know that one of the causes is uncontrolled aggression. Yeah. And, you know, the rise of abuse. And and I am not excusing any abuser. Like we say, nature versus nurture. It's not versus. If you have something already instilled with you from nature, from like what you were exposed to as a child, but then you have an additive that hyper drives that into overdrive. Mm-hmm. We need to stop minimalizing and brushing off these like certain people as these out of our realm instances like the big serial killers. And we need to stop making it seem like it's just this one person. Like think about too, how many unsolved cases there are in the world. We can't link those to specific people. And what if those specific people also have links similar to these other people that have become like these like celebrities almost in a sense because of like the heinous crimes that they've done. Yeah. Well, when Jenny and I went to Alaska, we were just overwhelmed by the number of missing person signs for for mostly Native women. Hugely and, disproportionate uh, with Indigenous women. What is that like? What, what What's going on? How did that And happen? not in the news. Yeah. yeah. And like, too, like when you go to the Pacific Northwest. Right. Humboldt and Mendocino counties where it's just like, like you said, it's everywhere. We will touch on the psychological and behavioral effects of lead a little deeper in another episode or possibly a deep dive on Patreon. But just to keep this kind of behavior in mind, because many scientists and researchers are shining the bright light on the link of lead and crime. And I know podcasts like last podcast on the left, they focused on a link between leaded gas and the rise of serial killers in the 70s. And this is something I really want to dive real deep into when I have time. But for now, let's get back to the fucked up corruption of leaded gas. Yay! So Dr. Needleman goes on to say, quote, a moratorium of the use of tell was called and the Surgeon General convened a meeting of industrialists 
public health specialists, and academic physicians to determine if this new product was a serious enough threat to be banned or whether it could be sold to the general public. So again, this is early 1920s that we're talking about here when they already knew like, man, this is making our workers die and uh, have uh, complete psychotic breaks. At the Surgeon General's meeting, a young assistant professor of pathology at the University of Cincinnati named Robert Kehoe emerged as the principal industrial expert and spokesman. So, you know, we always got this person who's going to be like, I know everything about this, but I'm getting paid by the corporation. When workers died in the Dayton plant in 1923, General Motors asked Kehoe to consult and make preventative recommendations. So again, instead of going, wow, this is killing people, we need to find something else. No, we've invested too much into this, and this is the cheapest option. So let's figure out a way to just work around it. He made some measurements of lead levels in the plant and in workers directly exposed to tell. This assignment marked the beginning of a major career shift for Kehoe. C.F. Kettering would, with support from the Ethel or Ethel Corp. DuPont, and others open the Kettering Laboratory on the University of Cincinnati Medical Campus and named Kehoe as its director. The fact that DuPont could open a lab at a university, the money, like it just literally makes me speechless. Kehoe would also become medical director of this ethyl or ethyl court and a corporate officer at GM. In the Surgeon General's meeting and others that followed, his words were put forward as the final opinion on lead by the industry representatives. He spoke with a great confidence that his data was the best, if not the only, guide to the truth. Kehoe's sway in lead toxicology held until the late 1960s, that's over 40 years. The durability of the extraordinary scientific solecism that led in the body was natural is a testament to the shielding power of reputation. As Needleman says, it pays to advertise, end quote. Kehoe did the study at a lab at this medical campus at Cincinnati that was paid by DuPont. <laughs> you know, like you leave this vaccine causes these heart palpitations but it's higher if you don't get the vaccine. Taking out the important pieces of a puzzle is kind of important and something that happens all the time. And that's why I say like statistics can be dangerous because if you don't have all of the information of how those statistics got to be, nowadays with social media and you see these statistics and it cites like, you know, from blah, blah, blah. Oh, but this person's getting paid by the oil company, like same with climate crisis. These statistics are coming from this reputable, but that person's getting paid by the people who want to keep doing what they're doing. And maybe there's an app. And if there is, please somebody email us or add us on social media that you can go and like find statistics and find all the details. And if there's not, please somebody create it or like, let me like patent that right now. So these are the statistics. This is the case study. This is who funded it. This is the person who conducted it. This is the area where it was conducted. And it's all just succinctly in this like little chunk. I really feel like that's super important right now to our society to make sure that we have, if, if we're going to get these instant gratification statistics, we should also be able to have the quickest way of seeing all of the elements of that without having to read a 10 page paper on it. 
Needleman goes on to write, quote, there were no scientific challengers to Kehoe until Claire Patterson. His methods and conclusions could not have been more different. Patterson aimed his attack at Kehoe's assertion that lead was a normal component of the human body, insisting what he called, quote, normal was in fact, quote, typical. So that dangerous use of wording that you, you know what I mean? Like interchanging words and going back to what's safe is acceptable. It's not safe, it's acceptable, but they use the word safe. Going back to Needleman quote, this was more than a semantic quarrel. Patterson fundamentally altered the vocabulary with which the debate over the health effects of lead was conducted. Most people following Kehoe's arguments referred to quote, normal levels of lead in blood, soil, and air, meaning values near the average. They assumed that because these levels were common, quote, normal should be replaced by, quote, typical. Simply because a certain level of lead was commonplace did not mean it was without harm. Quote, natural, he insisted, was limited to concentrations of lead that existed in the body or environment before contamination by man, end quote. And that's where I feel like this is a good place to bring up the importance of wording and the intentional manipulation of wording to fool the common folk by the people who have their own agenda. Saying something is safe when it really is acceptable to the powers that be and saying something is normal and using that as a way of saying typical to make it sound less severe is something we all need to pay more attention to. It's like brands that label something as natural and we, the consumer, assume that means it's good for us. Well, if it says natural, that means it's good for me. That's the first thing that popped in my head is that, you know, reduced fat, natural, all of that wording doesn't connect to good for you. I mean, obviously it was going on before this. Now back to the Smithsonian article. Uh, This is just really infuriating. It is, isn't it? Well, I don't know enough about this. I don't know enough about these people, but I can, the picture that you're painting is someone who has an agenda, someone that's profiting off this, someone that really only needs to say a few words. They only need to not say a couple other words. They need to show up to a few meetings. Their lives get significantly better. And also they know, it's like what you said about that person with the plastics company, they know how dangerous this is. And I guarantee you they themselves are not using this. Yeah. And I, the thing I was trying to, that I forgot, I wasn't able to say earlier is just how, like how toxic and destructive a lot of science can be. There's a lot of politics and funding. There's a lot of gatekeeping. Uh, There's a lot of people who are funding research to be on the cutting edge. There's not a lot of research that's being funded that is replicating other people's research, which is a big deal in science. We need to replicate these these experiments, but that's not exciting. I feel like the, the thing that I was really trying to say is that when these people push back, I mean, we might say like, they're clearly bad actors. They're clearly, uh, they're not- uh, They're magicians. <laughs> they are magicians. They push back. It's not, they're not wrong when they point out some of the glaring negatives that are present in academic and scientific culture. You know, where did you get your funding for this? How come you don't have these people looking at that? I think a really good example in politics is like with Nancy Pelosi or 
Trump is stealing this, Trump is stealing that. And then, but also one has to do is say, but Nancy Pelosi is making all this money off Wall Street. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, they're all corrupt. And then people just sort of land back on to this platform that they're most comfortable with. You can't trust it's anyone. It's like a rubber band effect almost. It, I, I wonder if that's really what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it um, feels like a rubber band effect. So they make these ideas of normal and mm-hmm. it's, clearly not normal and it's clearly not well what's your definition of normal well that's so it's like oh there's no way you can tell and it's just like all right now i'm just gonna land back to where i was and And the other really frightening thing is just that if i were to asking a drug addict like let's go through your day let's go through let's chart four of your normal days and then saying like oh well you know it seems like there's a lot of heroin in your day so it seems typical it's typical yeah true it seems and normal for for that specific person because it's for, typical that means it's normal that's it's, that's literally what they're saying with these words so back to that smithsonian article quote the task force did look briefly at risk associated with everyday exposure by drivers automobile attendants gas station operators and found that it was minimal The researchers had indeed found lead residues in dusty corners of garages. In addition, all drivers tested showed trace amounts of lead in their blood, but a low level of lead could be tolerated, the scientists announced. This part made me want to fucking scream. (laughs) But my daughter was in the room next to me sleeping, so that wasn't an option to scream at the time. And I like to quote um, Wine and Cry by when they say, "I, I screamed inside my heart while I read that because I was so enraged by that could be tolerated you can just deal with it pull up your bootstraps and oh lord so deborah blum who's quoted in the smithsonian article she continues on to say quote that report acknowledged that exposure levels might rise over time because as we've mentioned lead exposure is a snowball effect it accumulates quote but of course that would be another generation's problem she writes Those early actions set a precedent that was hard to undo. It wouldn't be until the mid-1970s that a growing body of evidence about the dangers of leaded gasoline led by the EPA to enter into a years-long legal struggle with gasoline makers over phasing out leaded gas. And that's another thing, that this idea that it wasn't just shut down, that they had the ability to fight that when it's a poison. And they knew from the beginning it was a poison. I mean, and it goes back, like what you're saying, goes back to climate change and the the fact that this has become a political issue. Mm -hmm. So the Smithsonian article, which again is brilliant, goes on to say, quote, the effects of so much lead being burned and forced into the air are still being felt in the United States and other countries where leaded gasoline was or still is used. And this is something I feel we need to remind listeners about that leaded gasoline might have been banned in the United States. And you might think that means you can't be affected by that type of lead poisoning, but a friendly reminder that when it's airborne, it can travel in the atmosphere and travel far and wide. I believe I mentioned this a couple weeks ago that scientists found lead in, from ancient Rome in snow found in Greenland. I mean, we as American culture, we have that same kind of mentality as the corporations of like, well, if it's not affecting me personally, why is it that big of a deal? 
I'm not seeing it personally. It seems like it's an issue of, of mitigation. It's never mm-hmm. an issue of tactics or strategy. It's mm-hmm. never an issue of let's really come up with a plan. And I keep going back to this idea of like our relationship to lead. We can't face it. And it was just a child whistling in the dark, hoping mm-hmm. that this doesn't ever come back and get us. Mm-hmm. So Kat Eschner finishes her Smithsonian article by stating from other sources, quote, children are the first and worst victims of leaded gas. They are more susceptible to systemic and neurological injury. And that's a quote from Kitman, who's also quoted as a source in her article. Research has shown that lead exposure in children is linked to a whole raft of complications later in life, writes Kevin Drum of Mother Jones. Among them, and this is what's also in that NBC article that was published recently, lower IQ, hyperactivity, behavioral problems, and learning disabilities. A significant body of research links lead exposure in children to violent crime, he writes. Much of that lead is still around in environments that were contaminated by gasoline fumes during the era. It's a problem that can't be left for other generations, drum writes, end quote. So again, just because the physical substance of leaded gas isn't being used, it's still being recycled in our atmosphere and it's in the soil. And then when it's windy, that picks up. And like we mentioned too, like you can't destroy lead. So from an article written by Paul Monks from a publication called The Conversation, we're going to take a little look at the significance of leaded gas in the UK. And obviously I know this is the United States of Lead podcast, but you know, the UK, we came from there, whatever, it's the same thing. So quote. As a scientist studying lead poisoning in children once remarked, it took two years to put lead into gasoline and 60 years to take it out. Again, we have known that lead is toxic for over 2,000 years, and I literally might need to put that on a t-shirt at this point. Just picturing a black t-shirt that says, we have known that lead is toxic for over 2,000 years. From the same article, Paul Monks wrote, quote, from 1970 until the end of the century, it's estimated about 140,000 tons of lead was released into the atmosphere from the tailpipes in the UK. Since 1999, using lead in fuels has been banned. So we banned it just a few years earlier here in the United States. I mean, obviously, we could look at how many, you know, the rise of the General Motors and all that stuff in the U.S., like, I guarantee you our amount of lead in the atmosphere is astronomically higher than what it was in the UK and also the size of the US. So just in the UK alone, 140,000 tons of lead was released into the atmosphere from 1970 to 1999 from leaded gas in vehicles alone. So we got all those other ways that we're getting lead exposure. So how long did leaded gas toxins stay in the atmosphere? Oh, don't worry. They're still there. (laughs) Don't worry, everybody. You're still breathing it in. Yeah. (laughs) I was real worried about that one. So the conversation article goes on to say, quote, though petrol containing lead hasn't been seen at a station pump in the UK this century, lead pollution is proving to be a persistent menace. A recent study showed lead lingering in airborne dust collected in London between 2014 and 2018, nearly two decades after tailpipe emissions of the lead metal had ceased. The lead content in that study was measured in particles collected either at a roadside or at a rooftop height. The chemical fingerprint closely matched that of road dust and topsoils, suggesting that contaminated soil is acting as a reservoir for 20-year-old lead pollution, which is continually returned to the atmosphere when disturbed. The fact that lead at street and building heights shared the same chemical signatures suggests airborne pollution is fairly well mixed across London. 
a strong wind or construction. It's all just going back up yeah, into the does atmosphere. Does London have any construction? Also, I mean, us, I just think like I I never would think about these things driving down the highway. Right. Or even like a building being constructed in a, a an industrial city. And like I said, too, it doesn't have to be industrial because like we said, it, it travels in the atmosphere and it comes down in precipitation. So even though it might have happened here, it goes up in the wind, goes into the atmosphere, travels, and then rains down somewhere else. So again, quote, lead does not biodegrade or disappear over time. It can remain in soil for thousands of years where it can be blown back into the atmosphere. He goes on to say it's worth noting that today's airborne concentrations of less than 10 nanograms per cubic meter are tiny compared to the average of greater than 1,000 in the 1960s. I know it was way higher here in the U.S. because of our absurd obsession with it. But there is strong clinical evidence that even low lead exposure can affect the development of the brain and nervous system in children, resulting in impaired cognitive function, attention, and behavioral problems. No safe lead level in children has been identified, and the air is just one source, end quote. So like I said, we have all of these different ways. And we think too of like the decline in the education system, you know, children's testing and, and even just their behavior. Like, I, like my mom's school, obviously like there's different, like we need to evolve, like in how we teach our kids. And like, there's always like a, well, why, why is this happening? And nobody's looking at this, I feel like as the source and root of a lot of this. And not just like in the U.S., like I said, this is everywhere. These like ADHD, hyperactivity, and you know, like the blaming television. Yeah, like watching too much TV isn't good, but it's just the 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 fuel added to the fire that's already burning. Are you gonna say something? <laughs> no, I'm just oh. blown away. <laughs> just blown away by all this. This is yeah. Yes. I still so when when we're talking about dust, you're talking yeah. about and we're gonna uh, get to dust so, soil. <laughs> yeah, like these are all so insidious. And it's the idea that like all of these things can happen to yeah. all of us, but yeah. there is just no common cultural plan for yeah. how, like how, climate we, change. <laughs> how do we make sure that our, our loved ones, our newborn children, our older adults, uh, how do ourselves, how do we make sure that we're not exposed to this? And because um, there's really, I mean, there's, there's no products at Home Depot that keep lead dust out. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that there could be or should be, or I don't know, but they do suggest no wearing the N9, N95 masks. If you're, if you're in an area where like, it's like a high probability of yeah, I like, think that inhaling it. Well, and after seeing all this, it seems like that's most areas. Well, and I was going to say, so going back to climate change, yeah, the fact that this picks up when like, you know, wind and like, think about how much more wind has increased yeah. globally. So, I mean, the fact that this study was done in 20, I think this was from 2014 to 2018, you said, it's going to increase because of yeah. how severe our weather is and yeah. storms and uprooting all of that stuff. So Dr. Herbert Needleman touches a little on the effects of banning leaded gasoline in the U.S. by stating, quote, the removal of lead from gasoline in 1990, regarded by many as one of the major public health triumphs of the 20th century, had immediate impact. Between 1976 and 1994, the mean blood lead concentration in children dropped from 13.7 mcg 
to 3.2 mcg in direct proportion to the amount of tetraethyl lead produced. One could want no clearer testimony to the efficacy of a well-conceived and consistently applied public health policy, end quote. And as we've known in the past episode, again, no safe amount of lead just was considered typical. And I want that to highlight that, you know, for anybody who has children or anybody's going that has lead testing and and your doctor's telling you this is what's considered safe. It's usually 5 MCG. It used to be 10. Before that, it used to be higher. There's no safe amount. We have to stop using the word safe. Trace amounts of lead have serious and long-lasting effects in children and adults. In 1993, the National Academy of Sciences verified that lead at extremely low doses cause neurobehavioral deficits. So we seriously need to draw more attention to this fact and how absurd it is that public health officials can say safe and that state and federal guidelines are allowed to use such dangerous terminology and not call it what it is and what the government considers acceptable, poisoning. It's not safe and quite honestly, it should not be fucking acceptable on any of us on planet Earth. Not just the United States, but a universal way of discussing this. That really is the crux of the issue. So by 1975, unleaded gasoline was universally available. Effective January 1st, 1996, leaded gasoline was banned by the Clean Air Act for use in new vehicles other than aircraft, racing cars, farm equipment, and marine engines. So again, mass, sure, but still allowed even though we know how poisonous it is. So in Minneapolis, we just, Amir Locke was murdered by the Minneapolis Police Department when they did a no-knock warrant where he was oh, yeah, staying. Yeah. Uh-huh. And Amir uh, had more trigger discipline than a host of gun-happy police officers from Minneapolis mm-hmm. PD, and uh, they killed him. So mm-hmm. we there's this big push to ban no-knock warrants, and mm-hmm. that was just banned. So technically, no-knock warrants are banned in Minneapolis, except when this just happened. Except There's when, an asterisk. Yeah, and the asterisk is except when the police are allowed to use their experience to determine in the moment whether they need to proceed. So they didn't it. actually do it. So it's not really banned. I mean, they're it's banned. Like- you can't You can't go get one, but you can get a warrant and mm. that would cause you to wait I think it's 30 seconds. So they're distorting their wording. So it's 30, you have to wait 30 seconds at night for someone to come to the door. If someone, the police banged on my door at three in the morning and I've been sleeping for five hours, I have 30 seconds to get up and come around to the front door. Yeah. And also, are you going to be going to the door? I mean, they have to announce themselves, right? So the idea would be that they announce themselves and then if you didn't Then you have 30 seconds. Then they, yes, then they would bust down your door. So Um, they didn't get rid of it. (laughs) They still are saying they can bust down their door after 30 seconds. But uh, so even that, I think, is extreme. Like that Mm -hmm. idea is absolutely the idea that someone can come out of their sleep fog and Mm -hmm. do whatever they need to do to get to the front door and then like realize what's going on. And, Mm -hmm. and sometimes you need to be fully aware of what's going on because they don't Mm -hmm. always get the right place. They don't, are not always looking for the right Uh, person. Yeah. Brianna Taylor. Yeah. Mere luck. So there's still an exception and I'm I'm reading, you know, hearing you read this, it's like, it's just, it's just absolutely infuriating that there can be this, we need to ban all of this, you know, except for all these exceptions. It's it's like, like I said, it's all about the wording. It's, it's, it's the magician. 
It's all about the illusion that they're creating. And you touched briefly on something that I want to mention to uh, people listening is we're going to talk a lot about and extensively about lead and ammunition, because again, lead is an ammunition peeps. So that's something that we got to really do a deep dive on is that exposure and the effects of that. So going back to the, you know, it's been banned except for these things. Just want to have a friendly reminder here to listeners that for some fucking reason, NASCAR was still able to use leaded gasoline until 2008. So we touched on those effects in the UK when it was banned in 1999. And yet here, and you know, they're still racing obviously over in the UK and other parts of the world. But NASCAR, we know, is a big part of a certain sector of white culture in America, it seems. For years and years and years and years and years and years after public and private officials knew how dangerously toxic leaded gas was, America still said, fuck it, America, we have the need for speed. And think again, like we've said, the fumes and all of those cars that just go in a circle over and over and over for hours and people are just breathing it in and how we said it travels. And it wasn't until 2008 that NASCAR stopped using leaded gas. So there's clearly more that we need to discuss on this topic and so many different avenues and roads to go down, including looking deeper into the key players in the industry, the link between crime and leaded gas exposure, and diving deeper into NASCAR, which we will either do in a future episode or exclusively on Patreon, haven't decided yet. Anything you want to have as a last last little end note here for this episode? Well, I'm glad I went into this kind of blind. I don't know if I would have... I could have um, slogged through this with you as, I mean, it's just shocking. It's just so shocking. I, w- I think I would have just been angry. I'm angry now. And I would have <laughs> yeah. been more angry had I. You would have been like I was when I was writing these notes, but I had to I inside my heart because Ruby was sleeping. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's a lot. To, it's a lot. And we've just, you know, peeled the first part of that onion off. There's a lot of layers to that onion. It's a really great look at the system of it. But mm-hmm. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in to United States of Lead. Tune in next week as we tackle the issue of lead's link to our instant gratification culture. Want to learn more about this topic? Consider making a donation on Patreon to unlock bonus content, including deep dives, exclusive interviews, and video episodes. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Do well, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to United States of Lead, hosted by Andrea Elizabeth and Paul Kramer. Want to know more about this subject? Consider making a donation on Patreon, where you can unlock extended video episodes and bonus content like deep dives and exclusive interviews. Just a quick disclaimer, Andrea and Paul are not experts in lead poisoning. We do ask that you check our sources and read up a little bit more on your own. Thanks again for listening. 